If you don't know me, that's because we haven't met. <laughs> I'm Gary Post. I'm the associate pastor here. Uh, Mark and uh, Mark Kring and Lori, the senior pastor, are uh, away this weekend. A little bit of a break. I think they're skiing, actually. So, or at least that's the story he gave me. Let's, uh, let's pray before we begin, shall we? Dear Father, I thank you for this opportunity uh, to uh, share together in the teaching of your word. And we know that uh, nothing will happen here of any significance this morning without your Holy Spirit's power. And so we'd ask that you pour out your spirit on this place and on each heart here that you would uh, speak your truth into our hearts and that you would accomplish, uh, accomplish the eternal purpose that you have for this moment in time in each heart that's represented here. And, and we ask that you do that in the, in the powerful name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, in the late 1970s, before some of you were born... I was a, a young trooper. About 35 years ago, I was a young trooper on the freeways in the city of Detroit. I was working the freeways down there. I was assigned to the Lodge Freeway. Most of you know that that's M10. Runs north and south out of the city of Detroit, out of downtown De- Detroit. Uh, and I was on the midnight shift. So I was, it was uh, the middle of the night. And I spotted an, an, an old Dodge, a beat-up old Dodge, uh, southbound on the Lodge, uh, without any lights on. I thought that was kind of curious, and so I chased him down and, and uh, stopped him. And I walked up to the driver's window and, and asked him why he was driving with his lights off. After all, it was dangerous, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And he, he explained to me, he was an elderly man, he explained to me that uh, his electric bill had been so high at home that he, that he shut off his lights on his car to save a few dollars. Now, you think I'm making this up. No. <laughs> No, I don't make them up. I don't have to. <laughs> and you know, I, I was very rarely speechless on one of those occasions, but that was one of the moments when I, when I couldn't quite get it together. And I kind of measured him, and, and, and you know, what, was he just shining me on or what? And, and I concluded that he was dead serious. He thought that there was a connection. I, I looked behind the car quickly for an extension cord, but... <laughs> but wasn't there. Well, and then he asked me, well, how much do you think I can save? And in the spirit of the moment, I said, well, that depends. Do you have gas lights or electric lights on this car? (laughs) He gave me this deer in the headlights look like, oh, I don't know, I never thought of that. (laughs) So I went back to, to the back of the car, peered intently at the taillight. I went back up to the driver's window and, and announced, it's okay, you've got gas lights on this car, you can leave them on. And he thanked me and drove away. I didn't have the heart to write him a ticket because I thought he had enough going against him, you know. Now, now we can laugh about that story of somebody who was oblivious to the way electricity operates in his life. Uh, but it strikes me that sometimes we as followers of Jesus Christ are oblivious to how God wants to operate in our lives and, and what he desires to accomplish through us. We're sometimes oblivious too to, to the way Satan uh, intends to deceive us and his strategies to distract and, and to neutralize us so that we miss God's unique purpose for our lives and that we fail to produce the outcomes, the fruit that we'll be talking about this morning that God has in mind for us. Uh, it's possible for a person who is a, a Christian to arrive at the end of life and realize that, that he or she had their ladder up against the wrong wall, that they've invested their life, that they've spent their time on things that don't matter for eternity. Everybody's familiar with the saying that uh, you, you, don't, you don't see any U-Hauls behind hearses, right? You can't take it with you. Material things and, and things that are of this world will we'll pass away as far as we're concerned. But there are things that we can accomplish in this life that will last for eternity and that, that God values for eternity. That's what we're here to, 
to talk about today. And the start of a new year is a great time to talk about our life with God and how we can re-energize that, realign our, our, uh, our desires and our purposes with those of God, and, and that's what we're going to talk about today. Jesus had a lot to say about that. Let's read about it in, uh, in Mark 4. We're going to be talking about the parable of the sower today, and I'm going to use, that's, that's in the three synoptic gospels, that is uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. You won't find it in John. Uh, but we're going to be looking at Mark 4 today. Mark 4, verses 1 through 20, that we're going to read together. I'm going to read out of the English Standard Version uh, Bible. That's the one in the pew and the one that will be on, on the screen as well. So, chapter 4, beginning with verse 1. Again, he, he, that being Jesus, began to teach beside the sea. And a very large crowd gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole crowd was behind the sea, was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables. And in his teaching he said to them, Listen, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground, where it did not have much soil. And immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched. Since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside everything in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive, may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. Now let me stop right there and explain something, because it seems a little unfair, doesn't it, that some people wouldn't be able to understand. Uh, but notice that he is gathered with the twelve and those around them. Right, uh, So there were, there were a larger group of people that he was gathered around. Uh, those, presumably, who were inquiring further. A parable is an enigma in that culture. It was intended to be a mysterious story that, that would, um, that would uh, trigger further inquiry. That, that is, that would make you inquisitive uh, about finding out more. And, and to investigate and explore more. That was the purpose of a parable in that culture. That's what that story was deliberately designed to do. Consider also the fact that Jesus was preaching to a very difficult crowd, one that opposed him. If you look in chapter 3, just prior to this, you'll see that, that uh, many of the Jewish leaders who did not believe in him and were there to oppose and confront him uh, uh, actually accused him of being demon-possessed. So that was the crowd he was dealing with there. Uh, many, there, there was a great unbelief. Many were opposed to him and were trying to, to trap him. And so uh, he told these parables so that those people who were desperately seeking God could find the truth. But uh, for those who were not, who were opposing Jesus, uh, who were hard soil in the terms of this uh, parable, uh, would be prevented from seeing the truth. Uh, let's pick it up again in verse 13. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word, and these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes the word that is sown in them. And, and these, are, and, and these uh, the rocky ground now, and these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a little while when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And still others are, are the ones sown among thorns. They're the ones who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those who are sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. Jesus deliberately used a story here that would have been very familiar to his listeners. In fact, in, in that Greco-Roman culture, they very often used the same example. Everybody was familiar with agriculture, and a, the sower would have been seen as the teacher. And the, uh, 
the soil would have been seen as the students and, and the, uh, the seed would have been seen as the word that the teacher was uh, teaching. And, and the only difference that Jesus introduced to this was he brought a different meaning to, to the, uh, the, para, the, the, the parable and, and the, the concept of sowing. Uh, what Jesus was saying was that the sower, in, in fact, when, a, when uh, someone was sowing, that was a metaphor for God's work in the lives of his people. Sowing is God's work in the lives of his people, as it is in this parable. And the Greeks also would have said that an inability to produce fruit or an inability to produce results in a person's life would have been uh, as a result of, the, of a deficiency of intellect. Notice what Jesus says, it, it's not about that. He says the inability to produce fruit, the inability to produce results that uh, last for eternity is in fact due to a deficiency in the condition of the heart. The heart. Not not the ability to understand, but the heart. So who does the sower represent? Let me ask you that. Who does the sower represent? This is the the audience participation portion here. Who does the sower represent? Oh, Jesus Christ, certainly in this case, it was Jesus Christ, yes. Believers. Uh, believers? Yeah, good answer. There's more than one right answer here, isn't it? Uh, actually, uh, the, the ultimate sower is God because it's his truth uh, that he's, he speaks into the lives of people, but he does it through others. In this case, uh, Jesus, uh, who is God himself, uh, but also through other people. And anyone who sows the truth of God uh, is a sower. So you and I are, are, are sowers. And uh, by extension, that is. And we sow anytime that we not only just share Scripture with somebody, but anytime we share what God is doing in our lives, we're sowing into another person's life. Or, or we stop to pray with somebody who needs encouragement or, or healing or, or whatever it is. We're sowing God's truth into that person's life. How about the seed? What does a seed represent? Anybody? Yeah, the, the word. And you know, when I hear that, uh, that it represents the word, right away I think of the written word of God, the Bible. But it's, it's much larger than that. Uh, the, the word of God encompasses not only the word of God, but Jesus was called the word too, wasn't he? And, and, and it also encompasses God's larger truth uh, uh, beyond, beyond just the written word of God. Um, for example, uh, Paul says, uh, some sow, some cultivate, some reap. Well, there, there was no written New Testament when Paul was preaching. And, and so uh, he was sowing God's truth even though there wasn't uh, the word of God there. The, the point is that the word of God is larger than just the, the written word of God. Pastor and author Chuck Swindoll speaks to that point. He says, I believe we're safe in saying that the word here refers to truth, God's truth, truth for living, life-giving words provided for us by the Lord our God. The scriptures, yes, but also the insights, the perspective, and the wisdom that grow in us when the seed takes root. If you are taking in the word of God every day, it will transform you and you will have wisdom that ordinary people don't have. You will have insight and discernment and the ability to speak into other people's lives with the truth of God beyond just the scripture uh, that, that you will be able to have an impact on them for eternity. So the implication is that we're all sowers and that God is using what we share with others in their lives for his eternal purposes. Now, we don't always see the harvest until heaven, do we? In fact, I, I'm, I know that many of you will be those in heaven that someone will step up to and say, you know, you, you don't remember me, but I'm here because of you. I'm here because of something, uh, God's truth that you spoke into my life at some point in my life, and it changed the whole trajectory of my life. We're all sowers in that way. You want to be a sower right here? Well, I have an opportunity for you. Uh, go see Debbie Wright downstairs in, uh, in children's ministry. One of, the, one of the ways, one of the most promising ways to be a sower right here in this church is, is to be uh, part of that children's ministry team that speaks the truth of God into those young lives. And I happen to know because I talked with Debbie yesterday that she needs another 19 to 30 people, depending on the frequency they serve, in 2014 because our children's ministry is growing. There are that many more little lives and, and little hearts down there. And uh, 
I can't tell you how many baptism interviews that I've done where someone has said, as they, track, as they tell me their story and they track their spiritual journey, they will say, you know, my parents didn't even go to church, but my mom always dropped me off at Sunday school, and there was this, there was this teacher, you know, and I still remember what they said, and it changed my whole life. And now that I look back, that's the first point at which God touched my life. Was, that was the first marker that I remember was that time in Sunday school. When, when I was a, a little guy or a little girl. And, and I'm suggesting to you that, uh, that God may put that on your heart as, as a place where you could be a sower. That could be your personal ministry. In fact, I want to stop and pray about that right now. Dear Father, I, I lift up to you this need in uh, children's ministry and the opportunity that you put before us for personal ministry. I know that, uh, that you are going to put it in the hearts of some of the folks here, some of them don't even know uh, that uh, you have destined them to bear fruit in children's ministry. They don't even think it's a good fit for them. But Lord, I, I ask that you put it into their hearts and, and that you'd cause them to, to contact Debbie. And, and once, once they receive their assignment, once, once they uh, are put into a position to minister there, I pray that you would gift them and empower them on a supernatural level to carry out everything that you've assigned them to do. Lord, you told us uh, uh, when you were here on earth, you said, you said we should pray that the Father would send forth laborers into the harvest. That's what I'm doing right now, Lord, in obedience to your command. And, and I'd ask that you touch the hearts of people here and that you would draw them into that personal ministry downstairs to change the trajectory of those little hearts and lives for eternity. And we ask this in the powerful name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, there are four types of soil. And they represent four different responses from the hearts of people who hear the word of God. First of all, the path. What kind of ground do you find on a path? Hard? Yeah. Beaten down? No vegetation? Why is that? Well, because it's a path. People walk on it, right? And, and nothing can grow there. The seed falls on it, Jesus tells us, but it cannot penetrate the soil because it's hard. And so it's vulnerable to predators. It's vulnerable to predators. Satan is the apex predator. And Jesus said explicitly that Satan takes away the seed before it can take root in a person's life. Apostle Paul explains how that happens in 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. He says, The God of this world, that is Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. You see, Satan has uh, deceptions and strategies that he puts in place so to obscure the truth of the gospel so that people can't see it. Rationalizations and, and illusions and phony arguments uh, that they put up in front. Smoke screens so that they can't see the truth of the gospel. That is what he does. How can we counter that? How can we cut through that in a person's life? I know you know the answer. Pray. Prayer cuts through that. And that's why you, you'll notice one of the verses that I've given you in your packet there, 2 Corinthians uh, Three, uh, 2 Corinthians 10, uh, 3 through 5. It talks about spiritual warfare. We cut through that with prayer. We, it says we demolish strongholds and the illusions that are, and, and pretensions that are raised up against the truth. We demolish those through prayer and the Holy Spirit. And, and, uh, and we bring people to faith in that way. Well, rocky soil. That was typical of the soil in, in Palestine of the day. Thin layer of soil. Uh, covered a uh, thin layer of soil over rocky ground. Hard to grow anything in. Seeds sprouted up quickly, but new plants were scorched by the sun and, and they withered before they could be, bear fruit. And what Jesus is talking about here, this represents the, the person who understands the facts about Jesus' life and death on an intellectual level. For, for them, it's a transaction. It's a decision they make to obtain fire insurance. Uh, it's happiness on the level of a person who's found a good deal, but no genuine heart change, and no commitment to follow Christ, and therefore no life change. It's business as usual. And, and so when hardship and difficulty come, as Jesus said here, when hardship and difficulty come, they abandon their faith like a flavor of the month because there's, root there, because there's no root, there can be no fruit and no long-term personality change or behavior change. 
Notice that with these first two types of soil, you don't see any evidence of genuine new spiritual life, do you? There's no root there. The, the transformation that comes when a, a person uh, accepts Jesus as their Savior, receives them, you see the Holy Spirit begin to work in that person's life and they begin to change. There's a joy and a love about that person. There's a desire to know God further and so on. You don't see any of that here. The thorny soil, the problem here is that there's not that there's no root. There's a root, but the plant that is produced by the word is literally crowded out, Jesus says, so it becomes unfruitful. Once we come to faith in Jesus Christ, once we're declared not guilty for all time, we're, we're justified. God sees us as righteous in Jesus Christ, even though our behavior from day to day may not be. Uh, then the, his goal for us is, is fruitfulness. And fruitfulness in Scripture is a metaphor for outcomes of eternal value to God. Fruit means outcomes of eternal value to God. And the Greek word here for crowding out means to, to choke, uh, to strangle, to press against, to crowd out. That's the connotation of the Greek word here. So it chokes out the fruit that, that could occur. Uh, there's, there's a parallel account in, uh, in Luke 8.14 about the thorny soil that gives us a little more information. It says, And as for what fell among the thorns, there, there are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they're choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life. And get this, their fruit does not mature. So you see, the, the hearts with the, that are represented by the thorny soil, uh, there is the beginning of fruit. Uh, there is that little nub that you see on an apple tree that later becomes an apple, but it never matures. And so it never becomes of any eternal value. Is it possible to be saved and yet to be unfruitful? Yeah, it is. It, it is if that fruit never comes to maturity. Well, what are the thorns like in this parable? What are the thorns like that keep us from fruitfulness that God desires for us? Jesus described uh, those whose hearts are like thorny soil in this way in verse 19. He said there are three things, three things that keep us from fruitfulness. Number one, the cares of this world. Number two, the deceitfulness of riches. And, and number three, the desires for other things. And they're all different. They all enter in and choke the word, he says, and it proves unfruitful. Uh, thorn number one is the cares of this world. And the connotation in the, of the Greek word there is anxieties, concerns, worries. So they're those kinds of cares. You know, worry can erode our faith. It can preoccupy our thinking. And it can impair our usefulness to God. And, and the reason that is the case is that worry turns life in, into a do-it-yourself project, doesn't it? It all depends on me. When God wants us to see that, no, it all depends on me. It all depends on God. And, and we need to, to ask him uh, for things. And that's why he tells us uh, not to worry. We're explicitly commanded not to worry in the New Testament. He says in Philippians 4, 6, and 7, do not be anxious about anything. Notice he doesn't say just, uh, well, don't be anxious about the big things. No, he says, uh, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. God is concerned about the smallest details of our lives, and we need not worry about them. Worry hamstrings us. You know, during the, uh, the power outage that happened uh, a couple weeks ago, not the most recent one, but the one before that, uh, our power frequently goes out in Holt. And um, on the, the occasion that went out last, it went out for two days. And our, our basement fills up quickly. Uh, the sump pump has to run, or I have a lake down there. So uh, I wheel my generator out right away and uh, go to hook it up. Uh, when about three hours after the power outage, I, I assumed it wasn't coming back on right away. So I'm out on the deck, the wind is howling, and it's cold, and it's nasty out, and I'm trying to get this generator started, and uh, the, the recoil starter would not engage with the, the motor, and so it, it would pull real easily, you know, and it, it wouldn't engage in order to start the motor, and I, I was just uh, momentarily discouraged, and, and, I, and I just uh, went to God, and, and I prayed, and I said, Lord, 
you know I need this generator right now. And, and I just ask you to start this generator for me. I just ask you to intervene here and start this generator. And, and I put my hand on the handle and gave it a pull and it, and it engaged and it caught. And, and it started, for the first time, I'd started that thing in a year. And it, and it started right up and it ran great for two days. And I, I took it in for repairs after that and the guy says that your recoil starter is all corroded. And it, got, it must have gotten wet in, in the garage or, or wherever and it rusted, it, it shouldn't work at all. And uh, I just said, thank you, Lord. You, you see, God is concerned about the little things in our life, not just the big, life-threatening kinds of things. And so um, many times we just need to pray when we're worried, give it over to God, and, and he will deal with it, even the little things. Thorn number two is the deceitfulness of riches, Jesus said. You know, I think it's significant that he warned us about this. He knows our hearts. He made us, right? He wrote the owner's manual. And so he, he knows what we can be corrupted and affected and distracted by. He said uh, he warned about the deceptive allure of money and material things because he knew the tendency of our human hearts is to find our sufficiency in things other than God. It tempts us to find our values in, and worth in what we own rather, in, rather than in the one who owns us. It captures our affections so that we focus on accumulating things that are quickly gone rather than producing fruit that lasts for eternity. Paul noticed the same thing and spoke to Timothy about it in 1 Timothy 6. He says, For the love of money, not money, but the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Let me ask you a question as you start 2014. Do you own your money and possessions or do they own you? Do you own your money and possessions or do they own you? Are you signed up for the plan that says that the one who has the most toys when he dies wins? It's all going to be lost. You can't take it with you. As they say, there's no hearse, there's no uh, U-Haul behind a hearse, right? And it all stays here. Only the things done for eternity will last. Thorn number three is the, is the dire, desires for other things. And these can be both good and, and bad things. It, it speaks to our human tendency to try to find satisfaction in various pursuits apart from God. Watch the commercials and, and see what is advertised that is guaranteed to bring you satisfaction. can be anything from a, 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 a spot remover, a, a skin spot remover, to a, a new car, to some kind of an experience, a, a trip or a cruise or whatever, but it's, it's guaranteed to help you find satisfaction. Uh, apart from God. Well, Satan is adept at uh, getting us to make the, the good things in our life the enemy of the best. And so, for example, uh, work and career is good. In fact, it's God-honoring. We're built to work. But uh, if it displaces, if it grows to the, in, in your affection to the point where it displaces your life with God <clears throat> and it displaces your time with your family, then you and I have our priorities out of whack. Our priorities are wrong. Relationships are, relationships are good. But if, if pursuing them leaves no time for our relationship with our creator, our priorities are misplaced. Educational achievement and, and advanced degrees are, are commendable. They're useful. But, but if we're trying to find our identity and our ultimate satisfaction in the status that comes from that, then we're deluding ourselves. There are good things on TV. But if you spend, like the average American, over two years old, if you spend 34 to 40 hours a week, uh, depending on whether you use the DVR, the other six hours is people who use the DVR to watch things. If you're spending, uh, like the average American, 30, 34 to 40 hours a week watching television, and yet you say you have no time to cultivate your relationship with God, then the good has become the enemy of the best, hasn't it? Yeah. And that's how Satan works. He doesn't have to destroy us. All he has to do is distract us and neutralize us. 
Sometimes the desires for other things that, uh, that distract us from God are, are evil things. The American Association of Christian Counselors estimates that, uh, based on their research, that 68% of young men and 18% of young women access pornography once a week. Notice how things got real quiet in here. It's one of the things that takes us away from God, that hamstrings our spiritual life. Every second, 28,258 internet users are viewing pornography. One in five mobile searches from mobile devices right now are, are for pornography. The average age that a young man is, is introduced to pornography in our sex-saturated culture is 11. Those are things that can hamstring us and keep us from God. Sex is so pervasive in our media and our culture. The American Association of Christian Counselors estimates that 50% of Christian men and 18% of Christian women have a problem with pornography. I see it a lot in counseling. The outcome is, is, uh, is shame and guilt and broken relationships. People are weighed down. They're neutralized for God because of the load of shame and guilt that they're carrying. And this is just one, one issue, but I'm convinced it, it affects a, n- a number of people. If you're caught up in that, uh, you are not beyond the reach of God's grace. And uh, God can restore, and God can redeem. And uh, there is escape from that kind of bondage. Come and talk to me, I can help you. Uh, but that is one of the things that can take us away from God. It can hamstring us and, uh, and neutralize our, our life with God. Not so much because of of God, it doesn't mean we're not Christians. Christians can fall into that because sin enslaves. And, and we can give ourselves over to something and be enslaved by it. But there's a, there's a way out. And God will provide for that. You don't have to live like that. Well, good soil represents hearts that are open and attentive to God's work in their lives. Notice you've you got four, ty- four types of soil here. And they all hear. Uh, but only one, the good soil, accepts the word and it proves fruitful in, in that life. He says in, in verse 20, but those seeds that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit, 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. Now the, the connotation of the Greek word here for accept is, is very interesting. You notice only the good soil accepts the seed. And the, the Greek word uh, to accept, uh, for accept, uh, means to welcome it for themselves. To welcome it for themselves. In other words, to, to take it in. As opposed to a mere intellectual assent. Yeah, that's, that's true. I guess that's historically true. I'll, I'll sign up for that. Uh, the folks who... It, uh, welcome it to themselves are the ones who receive it. John 1.12 says we have to receive Christ in order to become the children of, of God. It's a free gift, but we have to receive it. It's the difference between something being true and something being true for me. That's the accepting we're talking about. Now, fruit in the Bible symbolizes outcomes or results that God wants to produce in our, in our lives. Uh, first of all, in our character. He wants us to become over time as Christ's life become evidence in it, as Christ's life become evidence in us, images of, of Jesus Christ. That is, God works to strip away uh, all the old Gary Post stuff that I'm carrying around with me, so that Jesus Christ's life can be evident in me. That that's His goal for us over time. And He says that in Galatians 5:22. But the fruit of the Spirit that you should see appearing in your life, if you're a believer, is love, joy, peace, patience kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Those are all character qualities that are present in Christ. Christ is in us. All, all we have to do is kind of get out of the way so Jesus can live out those character qualities in us. So it happens first in our character, and then and, and only then it happens in our actions and behavior as a logical extension of that character. Uh, Paul tells us that in Ephesians 2.10. He says, For we are God's handiwork, get this, created in Christ to do good works. When you came to faith in Jesus Christ and, and you, you uh, took on that new life in Christ, became a new creature, 2 Corinthians 5.17, then you were created for good works. In fact, it says here that God has prepared in advance for us to do those things. 
So there are good works that God has prepared for you uniquely to do in, the, in this life. We need to ask him what those are. Here's an example of a fruitful response. Here's how it works. Uh, a young woman named, a young mom named Stephanie called my cell phone uh, on Thursday while I was prepping for this message. And, uh, you know, she had lost power some days before. She was stranded uh, with her mom, uh, needed diapers and food. <clears throat> and you may know we have a, we have a ministry here that is uh, in conjunction with Christian services. Uh, we're, the, we're the church in Lansing that actually we, we have a ministry run by Becca McAndrews here. She has a group of volunteers that uh, deliver emergency diapers and formula to, to single moms around the, around the city. Christian Services screens the calls, uh, sends the calls to us, and, and Becca deploys people. Well, that happened on Thursday. I sent her an email. She launched a group of volunteers. We don't ordinarily deliver food, but uh, these ladies boxed up a, uh, some food and, and delivered it to, to Stephanie where she was. And Monica Vandenberg, one of those ladies, uh, told me the next day uh, just this, this uh, sense of joy and satisfaction that that brought those ladies to work together to minister in that way. My, my point is that this is not just a task that they do. They're not just scoring points someplace. This, this is uh, what flows, we would say naturally, but I will say supernaturally. This is what flows supernaturally from the character of Christ that is already within them. That's why they're feeling that joy because they're being used by God to accomplish his purpose, you see? And so it, uh, the fruit comes first in our character and then it comes in our actions and, and what we do. It's Christ's character coming out as a tangible expression of his love. Well, what does good soil look like? I want to share with you a brief story from... Uh, the book Dreams and Visions by Tom Doyle. He's a missionary to the Middle East and he tells the story of uh, Hassan. He, Hassan has an interesting uh, vocation. He's an undercover Christian evangelist in Cairo, Egypt. One of the most dangerous places to be a Christian, let alone an evangelist. And uh, he has a passion for quietly, one-on-one, -on -one, bringing Muslims to faith in Jesus Christ. Well, one night he was awakened in the middle of the night uh, by a man with a mask and a gun, put the gun to his head and put his hand over his mouth and said, you're coming with me. And Hassan had no doubt that he was, uh, had been detected. He'd been discovered and he was going to be executed because that was standard practice. And so the, the, the man uh, kidnapped him, forcibly guided Hassan at, at gunpoint through the back streets of Cairo. And at, at one point he forced him to jump between the, the roofs of buildings that were 50 feet high. And Hassan said, I don't think I can make it. That's a long jump. I don't think I can make it. The guy pointed his gun at him and said, you can and you will. And, and, and he just prayed and, and God gave him the strength to make the, the leap. Finally, they stopped on a rooftop near a hatchway and um, the man pointed the gun at him and, and said, I, I want you to go down through that hatchway. Open it up and climb in. Convinced he was going to be executed, he complied he prayed, Lord, uh, I commit my spirit to you. And then he climbed down into the hatchway, and I'll let him tell his story from there. He said, I saw myself struggle through the opening as if I were an actor in a movie thriller. I hoped the scene wouldn't end too quickly, and, and once inside the gloomy structure, uh, the plot took a startling twist. I stepped into a foreboding room lit with a single candle, fully expecting my immediate execution. Ten obviously Muslim men stood in a circle and stared at me as I entered. They ordered me to sit down. When I complied, the menacing atmosphere changed instantaneously. The mysterious group smiled at me. The man who had kidnapped Hassan spoke first. We are imams. Now, imams, if you don't know, uh, imam is roughly, roughly comparable to a pastor who, uh, in, in the Christian faith. Uh, an imam in a Muslim faith is comparable to a pastor who would run a, a mosque and who would be a religious teacher and would enforce uh, Islamic law. He says, we are imams and we all studied at Al-Azhar University. Cairo is the intellectual capital of Islam. During our time here, each of us had a dream about Jesus and each of us has privately become a follower of Christ. For a time... 
We didn't dare tell anyone about this. It would, of course, have been our own death sentences. But finally, we could hide it no longer. We each prayed to Jesus for his help to learn what it means to be his follower. Over time, he brought us together, and you can imagine our amazement when the Holy Spirit revealed that there are other imams who have found Jesus as well. Now we meet here three times a week at night to pray for our families and for the people in our mosques to find Jesus too. We know you follow Christ. He led us to you. Hassan recalls, I was speechless. Then then I was so relieved, I laughed for several minutes while the group watched. The kidnapper finally explained the point of this clandestine encounter. He said, I'm very sorry I had to frighten you with the mask and the gun, but I, I knew it was the only way to get you here. It was just too dangerous any other way. I apologize. But now our question is, would you teach us the Bible? Now that's good soil. That's good soil, my friends. What can we learn from good soil? First of all, that God's objective for us is fruitfulness, that that our lives produce outcomes that matter for eternity. Secondly, that we don't produce the fruit ourselves. We can't do this in our own effort. It's not like going out there with a task list and saying, I'm going to do some stuff for God. It doesn't work like that. It's the Word of God in us that produces the fruit. Let me ask you a question. Is it possible for the quality or the condition of the soil in a person's life to change? Is it possible for the condition of the the soil in a person's heart to change? Yes, it is. It, It is, absolutely. In fact, Those imams we just read about were undoubtedly hard toward the gospel at one point in their lives. But God changed the condition of their heart. And and we see that all the time, don't we? Unbelieving hearts that are are hard toward the gospel but are softened by God to become receptive. And that's why we have to pray for people. That's the only way to break through. You can't argue people into the kingdom, but you can pray them into the kingdom. And that's what we need to do as believers. And whether or not the soil produces a harvest is always due to the condition of the soil and not the quality of the seed. The quality of the seed, that is, the word of God is always consistently good. But the condition of the heart will make the difference as to whether it produces fruit. And finally, when God acts to improve the quality of the soil in our hearts, it can be unpleasant and painful, can it? I consulted with uh, John and Monica Chester. They run the Chester family farm over on M52. And so I asked John, John, reflect with me a little bit about, uh, you're a farmer, you know, you know how to grow things. Uh, talk to me a little bit about how, how, that, how that meshes with the parable of the sower. And, and one thing John told me was that, that uh, before he plants, he has to break up the soil. And now that's a violent process. The soil is, is hard. You have to use a plow or a rototiller or, or a shovel to break up the soil to prepare it for seed. And it's the same way in our lives. Sometimes God has to break up the soil of our heart, make us attentive to him. And usually that comes, folks, through, through hardship and, and trial. John also says that, uh, that farmers have to enrich the soil from time to time to make it more productive. I read a book recently called Rooted in Good Soil by a guy named Tri Robinson. He and his wife are farmers in, um, in Idaho, on a mountaintop ranch in Idaho. The soil is kind of rocky there and uh, can be unproductive. So he and his wife were overjoyed one day when a friend showed up with a truckload of manure they they could use to enrich the soil and and make it more productive. Not all of us would have the same response, would we, if a friend showed up with that kind of a gift. But they they were overjoyed. My point is that uh, sometimes when when God allows some hardship or difficulty into our lives in order to enrich the soil of our hearts and draw us closer to him. Sometimes it, it feels like a truckload of manure got dumped on us. And you know, friends, that's when we have to trust the sower. That's when we have to trust the sower to, to know how best to produce fruit in our lives. Well, how can we cultivate our hearts for a bumper crop? How can I position myself to grow deeper in my relationship with God in 2014? It doesn't happen by accident. Uh, Some of you run marathons. I'm aware of that. And uh, how about if I said to you, hey, listen, I'd like to come along the next time you run a marathon. I'll just tag along. 
And um, your first question to me would, would likely be, well, have you trained for that? And, and, and I would say, well, well, no, but I, you know, I'll just try harder. It, it, it'll be okay. And you'd say, well, no, it doesn't work like that. You know, you have to train to run a, a marathon. We know that in many areas of life, simply trying harder is not a substitute for training. Uh, for example, would you, would you fly with a pilot who had no training as long as he agreed to try harder? <laughs> Probably not, right? Would you let an untrained surgeon operate on you as long as he promised to do his very best? That wouldn't cut it, would it? Would you entrust your retirement fund to an untrained financial planner who was just winging it and trying to learn from his mistakes as he went along? I don't think so. We recognize in many areas of life that producing the right results requires discipline and it requires training. And the same thing is true, friends, with regard to the most important area of life that is growth in our life with God. And uh, Paul recognized that when he wrote this to Timothy. He said, train yourself to be godly. For physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, including promise for both this present life and the life to come. Spiritual training sharpens us as God's instruments for use in, in both this life and the next life. Well, how can we, uh, how can we accelerate the process of our life, uh, growth in our life with God, growth in our life with faith? Andy Stanley in his book, uh, Deep and Wide, uh, says in his experience there are five catalysts for, for growing faith. He says that real spiritual growth is not so much about increasing our knowledge. Sometimes we think that, that, that we'll become more spiritual if we know more about the Bible. Not necessarily true. Uh, there, there are some people who know a lot about the Bible who have very little faith. They, they can't seem to trust God for much of anything. Uh, but uh, real growth is about growing our faith, that is our trust and confidence in who God is and what we can ask him to, to do in our lives. And he points to five catalysts that will help to, to grow our faith. A catalyst is something that speeds up a process, comes from chemistry. The first one is practical teaching. I like to call it truth with a handle. The problem is much, with much teaching is that it is, the goal is to help people assimilate information. But it has no practical application in life. People not, need to know not only what does the Bible say, but what difference is it going to make in my life on Monday morning when I have to go to work? Otherwise, they'll conclude that God is irrelevant to their lives. When Jesus taught, it wasn't just to dispense information, was it? It was to call people to action. That's why he says in Matthew 7, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice, is, and puts them into practice don't miss that, is like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man. Who, who built his house on sand. Practical teaching helps us to use God's word to impact the way that we live from day to day. The second catalyst is private disciplines, sometimes called spiritual disciplines. Not just a task list of things that we do that, uh, that earn us some favor with God. It isn't about that. It's about um, engaging in activities that, that position us so the Holy Spirit can transform us from the inside out. Uh, that, that make it easy for him to get at us. The first one is solitude. That is carving out some white space. Our lives are so busy and, and so full of noise that, that there is a very little time many times that, that we're alone, that we're quiet, that we can hear from God. So carving out some white space in solitude to meet with God. And then taking in the word of God every day. The word of God tells us who God is and how he works. And so when we, know, when we learn more about that, it builds our faith and our trust and our confidence so that we can ask God for, for what we need and see him demonstrate his power in our lives. I'm going to ask you, I'm going to challenge you to do the New Testament challenge with me. You'll notice in your packets today, there's a reading plan. And on one side of it, uh, you can read through the New Testament in a year. Uh, you get two days off every week, Wednesday and Saturday, that you can catch up. But you start with Matthew. And what I'd like to challenge you to do is, is with me, read through the New Testament in a year. It's one way of putting the Word of God into your life. And uh, 
you can meditate on key verses. Uh, you can memorize and meditate key verses. I found that memorization is one of the ways that God uses in, in my life to drive his word down into my life so that when, 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 I, when the Holy Spirit needs to use that in somebody else's life, it just kind of flows out naturally. You know, the Holy Spirit brings that verse to mind and, and I, I'm able to use it in another person's life to speak the truth of God into another person's life. Well, that's not just because I'm a pastor. That can be true of, that, that is true of many of you. I know it is. And, and uh, memorization is a way to meditate on it, uh, get that into your life. And I've given you a, a number of verses to start with there uh, to begin memorizing. Uh, a third discipline is prayer. Uh, and that's the key to releasing God's power in our lives. And, and through you in the lives of other people. Very often, what, uh, when, when God um, brings us into contact with another person, it, it is for the purpose of praying for them. Jennifer Kennedy Dean says, in one of my favorite books on prayer, Live a Praying Life, she says, your prayers will never do anything except release God's power for God's purposes. On the other hand, your prayers will always release God's power for God's purposes. When I pray, I visualize God releasing his power into a situation, whether it's to heal somebody, whether it's to resolve a, one of those complex human problems that we get ourselves into that only God can sort out, whatever it is. And I, I, I visualize God releasing power into that situation, and he does. You know, a couple, a couple weeks ago, a couple of people approached me during the week and said, would you pray with me about this or that? And uh, they were both complex human situations, the kinds of tangled messes that we get ourselves into that uh, only God can sort out. And, uh, uh, and I, so I did. I prayed with, with both of them about those things. Very next Sunday, they came up to me and said, you won't believe what happened. And I said, well, yeah, I will, because it happens all the time, actually. Uh, and that's not just for me. That's for you, too. I don't have any, I don't have any direct line to God or, or special uh, treatment from God. God will answer your prayers in the same way. And I know for many of you, he does. <clears throat> but the very next day in both of those cases, God had obviously intervened to resolve those situations that those uh, folks asked me to pray about. And that's, that's how he works in our lives. So uh, the fourth thing is, is journaling. And I'd encourage you uh, to journal not only what you're learning from God as you go through Scripture. Ask, himself to ask him to reveal himself to you in that piece of Scripture that you read every day. Jot down a paragraph. That, that shows what he taught you. <clears throat> and then also create a space in your journal. That's, that's something new that I've done this year. Create a space in, in my journal uh, where I record prayer requests and the date and when God answers. You will be amazed at how God answers your prayers uh, and how you can connect the dots. Our private time with God is the key to public fruitfulness in the networks of relationships that he's placed us into. The private time with God is the key to public fruitfulness because in that private time we are abiding in Christ. He says, Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless, it's a, unless it abide in the vines, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. Bearing fruit is not a do-it-yourself project. We can do, we can we can bear fruit of eternal value only as uh, God empowers us to do that. And you will sense when the Holy Spirit has brought someone to you. You'll sense when uh, God is using you in a way that makes an eternal difference in somebody else's life. The, the third catalyst is personal ministry. God grows our faith, friends, through our involvement in personal ministry, and everybody needs to have one. I, I'm aware, I, I shared with you the example of uh, Monica Vandenberg and the other ladies helping out this single mom with food and diapers, the obvious joy and satisfaction that they felt in that group of women comes from being used by God uh, to fulfill his purposes in the life of another person. Uh, recently, I asked you via email to help with folks who are out of power, and, uh, and 15 families from the New Hope family here, 15 families said, yeah, we can put people up, send them over. Uh, so that is a personal, an example of personal ministry. Another friend here from New Hope told me how she's discipling a woman in a, an adult foster care, how she just came to Christ. Uh, another one of you, another uh, woman friend here from New Hope is, is uh, teaching a Bible study down at the City Rescue Mission, a bunch of homeless moms. Uh, she's, she's speaking the truth of God into their lives, changing the trajectory of their lives. 
but you don't have to be a Bible teacher or a theologian. Another friend of mine uh, from this church uh, I heard about uh, encountered, he was told about uh, uh, an elderly couple who was freezing in their home over this most recent power outage. They were huddled around a a pot-bellied stove burning their phone book. He took it upon himself. He took that as his personal ministry uh, to go to that couple, hook them up with a generator, and, and, uh, and turn on their furnace. You don't have to be a theologian to do that. God will use you. And, and we need to look at those opportunities as divine appointments to, to demonstrate the love of Christ in a, in a tangible way. You can be a new Christian or one that's been a Christian for 50 years. God can use you in those ways. If you're doing those first three things, then you're much more likely to, to recognize when God does the last two things in your life. The first one is providential relationships. Something God does, he brings people into our lives. Recognize that God's placed you in a network of relationships by design. It's not an accident. There are key people in your life who change your whole spiritual trajectory when you look back, aren't there? And you are that person in someone else's life. You are the person that, uh, that someone will step up to in heaven perhaps and say, I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for you. You may not remember this but you spoke a word into my life or you did this or that, changed the whole trajectory of my life. That's where God puts us. Be alert to each relationship in your life as a divine appointment. Ask God for his direction and his role. Sometimes, sometimes God puts us in other people's life just so that we can pray for them because that's how he releases his power. I was in Office Max yesterday uh, getting, picking up the printouts from these uh, verses I had done. And the young lady there behind the desk, whom I'd never met, um, but she said, uh, you're obviously a pastor. Would you pray for me? She said, uh, would you pray that my power comes back on because it's been out seven days and it's causing all these problems? I, I said, I will pray about that. And, uh, and I did. I expect that God has turned her power back on. But I, I think the reason why he brought us together at that moment in time, it was a divine appointment because he needed someone to pray to release his power into that situation, you see, so that, so that his purpose could be accomplished, so that her faith could be strengthened when she sees that answered prayer. That's the way it works in, in your life and in, and in mine. Providential, uh, I'm sorry, uh, the last one is pivotal circumstances. Events in our lives that impact us positively or negative. There are no coincidences in the life of a follower of Christ. God orchestrates his events in our lives for, for his purposes. Paul tells us that in Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. But our perspective, our perspective on what happens to us is everything. Final quote from Andy Stanley in Deep and Wide. He says, if someone is convinced that, if, that every good and perfect gift comes from God, that everything belongs to God and that we are simply managers, then when good things happen, those good things won't be distractions to faith. If an individual believes God doesn't keep bad things from happening to good people, but instead uses those things to strengthen faith and draw attention to him, then painful, pivotal circumstances will be viewed as opportunities. In the end, they strengthen faith. You see, our responses to those pivotal circumstances in our life are part of the fruitfulness that God wants to produce in us lives that model unconditional trust in him no matter how tough the circumstances. So it's decision time. Let me ask you three questions. What will you do to put yourself in the way of the Holy Spirit in 2014 so that he can do his transforming work in you? Which of the spiritual disciplines will you commit to practice in 2014 to become a more useful instrument to the master? What personal ministry is God waiting for you to undertake so that he can equip and empower you through his Holy Spirit to do that ministry? And lastly, when will you start? When will you start? How about January 1? Yeah. Let's pray, shall we? Your Father, we thank you for an opportunity to have a, a fresh start. We thank you for your grace 
and your power in our lives, even though we don't recognize it much of the time. And, and Lord, we thank you for those glimpses you give us into what you want us to become and how you want to use us powerfully uh, to draw others to, to Jesus Christ and to advance your kingdom in this world. We, we pray that, uh, that you'd enlighten us, Lord, empower us by your Holy Spirit to, to see what you would have us do to draw closer to you and become more useful to you, become more fruitful in 2014. And, and we pray all of this in the name of our powerful Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.